Good morning, Church of the Cross. I am delighted to be with you this morning. Whenever summer comes around, um, a memory of growing up pops up in my mind. Um, I grew up in Houston, so still general Texas area, right? And if you don't know this place, you should soon. For several years, part of my family went to a place called Schlitterbahn annually. And we would go and we'd stay at a hotel and we'd eat German food at a place called Oma's House. And we spent days exploring each of the many water slides, two brides, and of course the very lazy, obviously artificial fiberglass rivers (laughs) that go throughout the park. And as you enter the main park, there is a very, very tall water slide. Unlike the ones with loops or tunnels or frills, this one is mostly just a hike straight up and then a terrifying, uncomfortable shoot straight down. (laughs) Her passage in Hosea today reminds me of that water slide. (laughs) And just like a water slide, there's a climb up and there's a peak and then there's a rushing down. And if you picture this water slide a little bit like a bell curve with steps going up one side and the chute on the other, you realize that there are moments where the elevation is parallel, but the place is much different. As we survey our passage from today, we're going to look at it from elevation points. We're going to start at the bottom and work our way toward the peak toward that part which is meant to draw most of our attention, that moment where your stomach churns and you think, what have I done, and am I really going to do this? Our first elevation marker, where we begin and where the passage ends, there's a calling out by name of Ephraim and Judah. Verses 10 and 11 aren't in the bulletin, but they read, I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. The ending is kind of a statement of fact, the state of the former union. I have seen a horrible thing. This is the same elevation point as our beginning in verse 4, when we hear the voice of the Lord like an exasperated parent What am I supposed to do with you? Now let's assume you were all perfect children and you never had a parent say this to you. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) I will let you in on a few things. (laughs) When your parent says, what am I supposed to do with you? It's not good news. (laughs) They are not looking for you to provide an answer. And you have not only done wrong, it's usually such a spectacular level of wrong that it is hard for your parent to conceive of how you got to this point. What comes next is usually the parent trying to explain themselves and then explaining what they have encountered in you, which is precisely what happens in our passage. And here's another little secret I'll let you in on. It's even worse if the parent asks this rhetorical question, this rhetorical plaintive question, and then goes silent. 
If a parent says a sincere, what am I going to do with you, and then walks out of the room, that means they have reached a point where they can no longer engage with you. The fact that God asks this question and then goes on means he's still engaged. The fact the passage goes on is good news, even if what follows is hard to hear. It is mercy in the midst of anger. It is the composure of someone who both understands the unraveling before them and is still in. And what is it? What is at this point of unraveling? What begins the parental explanation of what has gone wrong? Your love is like the morning mist, like the dew that disappears. We'll see that same Hebrew word for love again later in this passage. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's often translated steadfast love or loyalty. If you were to give an image of steadfast love or an image to loyalty, what image would you give it? What object or scene pops up in your mind? For me, it would be something weighty, something solid. It's opaque. It's heavy. To be honest, the first image that pops up in my mind looks like one of those acme weights you see in cartoons, or an anvil, or that brick wall the roadrunner paints to look like a tunnel. Something that when you run up against it, you reckon with it. Mist is quite different. Mist is real, just like an anvil, but you can never get a hold of it. It's not solid. You can see through it, you can walk through it, and it doesn't last. In the verses preceding this passage, there is this statement of faith, either as a template for the people or maybe something the people have said. And in it they say, as surely as the sun rises, he, our God, will appear. God will appear like the sun, and your loyalty, Ephraim and Judah, is like the mist that evaporates as soon as the sun comes out. At our first elevation, the descent of horrible things lock, locks eyes with the God who parents us. And in this locking of eyes, God doesn't turn and walk out. He continues on. He engages. Where do we need to receive the engagement of God today? Let's move up to our second elevation point. If the first is marked by God naming his wayward children, the second elevation is marked by violence. There are two types of violence in this passage. The violence God perpetuates through his prophets and also the violence the people perpetuate through their priests. In verses 7 through 9, it's unclear to scholars what specific features of cities and acts of specific violence, metaphorical or literal, are being called upon here. There's not a lot of consensus. But there are already, to modern readers, the comparisons to Israel's folly here suggest political treachery with religious motivations, violence and murder, all with the collusion of priests. It's a picture of the society coming apart. So we have this violence, this unraveling of the people. 
What makes the violence of God, which, by the way, is a deeply uncomfortable thought for many of us, what makes the violence of God different? First, in the language, the distinction between kill and murder is sharp. It is unlikely the bacon you ate this morning came from a murdered pig. <laughs> the, the pig was killed. Malice was not in the equation. Killing, while it can be accidental, is represented here purposeful and yet not malicious. The murder that the band of priests commit here, either literal or metaphorical, was done for personal gain, like robbers, and done in wickedness, in ways that are antithetical to the purposes of God. God cutting the people in pieces with his prophets, killing them with the words of his mouth. This is hard. It's not an image we enjoy. But as this passage and many others will tell us, the truth hurts. Proverbs 27.6 puts it well. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The truth hurts, but it's the kind of hurt that leads to healing. And yet, both are painful. Having a broken bone hurts, period. But what if the bone was broken before? If your bone has been broken before and wasn't properly realigned for healing, you are at risk for what's called a malunion. It seems like it's healed. New bone has grown, but the bone has grown incorrectly. You're not able to function properly. The only way to treat a malunion is to surgically have the bone broken again and then altered and realigned. It's been mentioned in the sermon series this was a period of seeming gain in the northern kingdom, that this was not yet the hard times. New bone had grown, and yet it wasn't healed. The pain of receiving God's words from his prophets was real, yet medicinal. In 2012, Drew and I and our then one-year-old Isaac were applying to serve as missionaries in Thailand. And even before we married, we planned on serving overseas. We had done our site visit, we had connected with our future boss, and we were doing things like thinking about what the Thai word for push was because we were trying for our second child and anticipated being overseas for the birth. <laughs> it was exciting, and this is something we had set our course on for years. And then one day, we got a call from the missions organization. The field doctor would not accept us because of Drew's type 1 diabetes. There was no discussion. There was no recourse. No conversations to be had. No medical records to obtain. The field doctor had none of our medical documents, which would have shown him how healthy Drew is and how all we need is access to insulin and refrigeration. But it didn't matter. It was of no use. Once a field doctor had said they wouldn't receive you, it was over. Even in the phone call, there was a sense that this was the Lord's no. It wasn't the doctor who we disagreed with. <laughs> 
or the agency who we wish had done things differently. It was the Lord. And it shocked and it hurt. And that same day, we received another no. And this one was not from the Lord. That very day, I had an early on miscarriage. And in a matter of hours, our vision for the future, our sense of what awaited us had passed away. And it's easy in the midst of pain to call it all unholy. To say that wounding, this violence, it's all wrong. It's all unholy and it's all to be denounced. We look for who's to blame or we look for sweeping statements about how things should be and we want both not to feel the pain and protect ourselves from the possibility of feeling it again. In the moment of the bone breaking, the felt distinction between the holy wounding and the unholy wounding may be small. But their intention and their results are night and day. The pain is real, but God's wounding is medicinal. It will lead to life. God's harsh words from his prophets are the kind of hurt that leads to justice, as in here, God's good and righteous judgments going forth like the sun. And I love that the author brought back the sun imagery. Chapter 6, then, if you take those pieces, it reads a bit like, we trust God will come like the sun. And God's saying, yeah, but the minute I appear like the sun, your love evaporates. And then guess what? The sun still rises. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses from 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will deny us. Yet, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The sun still rises, even in the face of inflicting wounding words on his people, he remains faithful. The sun still rises, the light still goes forth. God cannot stop being faithful to his people. Where do we need to receive the wounding of our faithful God today? At our third and final elevation, we reach the peak. The peak is the place where at once time moves too fast and altogether freezes. It's the place in the parent's speech where you, the pugnacious child, want to interrupt and shout back, what do you want from me? <laughs> it's the place where you stand at the top of the slide and you see it all and think, how did I get here? <laughs> it's your best, most heart-pounding, most bewildering moment. The peak of our passage, the top of our bell curve, is this, verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Father Peter spoke a few weeks ago about knowing God. So today we'll spend a little more time in the, the first part of these parallel statements. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you've been around church for a while, those words are likely familiar to you. 
Note that the word translated mercy here is the reappearance of that word, hesed, that steadfast love, that loyalty that evaporated in verse 4. You might be more familiar with the version that reads, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Honestly, I'm tempted here to revise this verse, to make it in light of our own cultural context. My husband Drew and I went to a show called Middle Ditch and Schwartz, where Thomas Middle Ditch of the HBO show Silicon Valley and Ben Schwartz, who played John Ralphio on Parks and Rec, uh, did what's called long-form improv. They took a suggestion from the audience at the beginning of the show, and they ran with it for an entire hour. Um, and at the end of the show, they were thanking the audience, thanking us, thanking Austin for having them. And then they ended with a seemingly spontaneous invitation to be nice. <laughs> There's just a lot going on, and people are crazy in the world these days, so, you know, be nice. Niceness, it would seem, is the key. God desires mercy, niceness, not sacrifice, not religious gatherings or costliness. After all, what does it cost to be nice? It's worth noting that only a day before that show, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who's an academic, she's a consultant and a writer on racial identity and race relations, published an article entitled, White People Assume Niceness is the Answer to Racial Inequality. It's not. <laughs> That's sincerely the whole title. <laughs> Can't make it up. <laughs> and it's a worthwhile read, particularly in light of this week's past events, which have opened up some old wounds and inflicted new ones. And as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the truest sense, we are to pay attention to one another's pain and anger and our particular place in that pain and anger. I desire steadfast love, not niceness. Steadfast love. Steadfast love, what does that even really mean? If this is the center of the passage, the principal request of our God and Creator, we should be sure we know what he means. Yes, we can get the definition of the word, but what meaning, what significance comes to life when we hear it? What's a living definition we can enact? There's a fun phrase I learned recently uh, called semantic satiation. <laughs> Here, if you a little laughter, fun term. <laughs> My hobbies include, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> If you don't know the term, don't worry, you know what semantic satiation is. It's that thing that happens when repeating a word or phrase over and over again makes that word or phrase sound ridiculous. The word itself loses meaning. If you were to sit here and say road, 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 over and over and over again, at some point it would start to sound funny to you. What a weird word, road. <laughs> Your brain then turns the word, which once had meaning, into meaningless sounds. It's the same if you study your word or phrase for a long time. And I think sometimes we struggle with semantic satiation in the faith. We repeat something like, steadfast love, steadfast love, steadfast love, and suddenly when confronted with the phrase, if we're not feeling particularly emotionally connected or moved in that precise moment, we're drawing a blank. And in that blank, you might feel sheepish, or scared, or even suspicious. Wait a minute, I've staked it all on this, 
And I have no idea what this is. Part of the reason I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice has that saturated quality to it is because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus references it. Jesus told Pharisees to go and learn what this phrase means, not once, but twice. In one of these instances we read in Matthew 9, while Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Just like in Hosea, we see the healing intention of God alongside prophetic rebuke. In the same invitation, not to sacrifice to the visible expressions of religion, but to mercy, to steadfast love. I haven't seen this, and nor have I created this, but I would really enjoy seeing a Venn diagram comparing, on the one hand, the people of Israel in Hosea, Hosea's times, and the Pharisees of Jesus' time. I don't read the book of Hosea and think to myself, obviously, Pharisees. Religious leaders who are so deeply committed that they make up rule upon rule to keep for themselves, to keep themselves clean. If I were to take the wayward people of God in Hosea and their obviously adulterous ways, and then set them alongside the Pharisees and their micromanaged zeal, isn't it odd that God would speak the same word to them both? Go and learn what this means. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. In her novel, Pachinko, Min Jin Lee tells the story of four generations of a Korean family Beginning in 1910, the same year Japanese occupation began in Korea. Sunja is the only child of her widow mother and is unmarried and pregnant. Her pregnancy is kept secret between her and her mother. Her mother runs a small boarding house and a pastor named Isak runs a room. Isak was reading the book of Hosea the morning he learned of Sunja's pregnancy. And he had a sense of clarity that he believed to be from the Lord, that he needed to ask Sanja to marry him, to give the child his name, and to love them both. There's an interesting exchange I'll read for you that they have as they talk about getting married. Isak asks Sanja a question, do you think you can love God? It occurred to Sanja that he'd ask her something like this, and she'd given thought to this God that the pastor believed in. Yes, she said, I can. She realized that the marriage had a condition, but it was easy to accept it. There was no way for him to test her devotion. How do you prove that you love God? How do you prove that you love your husband? She would never betray him. She would work hard to care for him. This she could do. When confronted with love or the question of love, we have this tendency to try to break it down into its pieces, pieces we can understand, small parts that we can name, small parts that we can control. Right? We even sometimes do this 
in church were like, well, how is hesed different from agape? And maybe there's a little bit of a distinction here that will suddenly unlock it and make my checklist clear. (laughs) Items on a checklist that we can see, sacrifices, being nice, proofs of our love. See, we did it. We kept the commands. We did our part. And these checklists do eventually reveal themselves. They reveal themselves most clearly when something goes wrong, when we're challenged, when we find ourselves back in the place of the child protesting, what do you want from me? I kept the law, now leave me alone. Leave me alone. And here we arrive at the heart of it. A sacrifice you can make alone. A checklist is one-sided. You can offer niceness without involvement. But God wants to be involved. He does not want to leave you alone, ever. God doesn't need something from us. He doesn't care if we're a religious people. He doesn't need us to light candles and prep sermons. In Psalm 50, he says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And this is my favorite part. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. (laughs) For the world and its fullness are mine. The steadfast love God desires is not something he wants from us as though we own it and now he wants us to give it to him. It's not the mist, but it's also not an anvil we carry around and lug to the altar. It's loyalty. It's love in flesh and bone. It's you. It's you, the wayward nation. It's you, the self-righteous. It's you. Our love only exists in fleshed. Theoretical love is not love, it's theory. Our love only exists in fleshed. The steadfast love God desires is a love we share in. We share in Christ's body, and his spirit dwells in our own. Rather than being a love offered alone, it's the kind of love that becomes a place where we can meet and be together. The kind of love that when we're broken, we come to him for healing, even if it was God who did the breaking. When we're in trouble, we look to him for rescue, even if it was following God that led us to the darkest valleys. When we're in need, we wait for his provision, even if he's the one who said to bring nothing on our journey. Where do we need to receive and reflect to share in the steadfast love of God today? Later in our worship, we're going to be invited to the table to a meeting place, a place where we can share in steadfast love. It's at table that we receive the engagement of God, and it's at table we receive the wounding of God inflicted not here upon those who deserve his justice, but on his very body. And it's at table we receive the steadfast love of God, and we offer ourselves in loyal love back. It's here we receive what he has given, and we say, 
Amen. May we have the love and courage this morning to receive God more and more fully as he is. He is better than we hoped and more confounding, more infuriating and more beautiful, more ferocious and more faithful. Let us pray. God, we ask that you pour out your spirit upon us today. We've already prayed this phrase several times, but we pray it again. Would you quicken our hearts? Would you quicken our hearts to your touch and our ears to your words and our bodies and readiness to obey? Thank you, Father, for your steadfast love for us, for your parenting that never lets go. Help us to love you as you are and not as we want you to be. Lord, we do ask that you would grow us in our ability to receive your hard words. Lord, that we would receive them and not miss out on the healing you have for us. Grow us in love and loyalty to you to the end of our days. Amen.